Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hi, this is Lisa, and uh, you can catch up with me on Twitter at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. Want to take a moment to uh, give a shout out to my top patrons, and they are Philip Barker. Uh, Michael Cross and Josh Johnson, thank you so much for keeping the lights on. And if you do sign up, you get a weekly bonus episode um, for as little as a dollar uh, a month. And it's pretty much just everything else I'm watching besides, you know, what we cover on the show. So join us on there. We have fun. Sometimes we have interviews on there as well. Um, but today we're talking about something else. I've got a returning guest. I've got Danny on the show. Say hi, Danny. Hello. How you doing? And Danny, you've been on the show a few times. Um, a, a lot of musicals or as we discovered last time, not all <laughs> musicals, but musically themed typically. Musical related, I guess. Musical <laughs> Except adjacent. for Final Destination. I think right. that one kind of stood out. But um, you've been on a few times, some great episodes. 1776 was really popular. Uh, we did Xanadu, uh, The Waitress. <laughs> I'm, I have a better memory this time, I feel like. Oh, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, you've been on several times. Really appreciate having you back. And yeah. uh, my guest always picks the movie. Oh, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Danny, do you want to introduce yourself in case people haven't heard those other episodes? Uh, sure. Um... I, uh, I'm a writer primarily. I've written screenplays that have been optioned but not produced. Uh, I've written a novel called North Pole High Rebel Without a Clause. And I think I talked about that when we talked about the movie Elf. Um, yes, that was fun. And I've written books about screenwriting. And I've also written a few musicals. Uh, in particular, there was one that... Um, I wrote a musical that played at the Hollywood Fringe Festival that was about the porn site um, Chatterbait. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I'm not at all uh, shy about musicals that have to do with uh, naughty subjects. <laughs> <laughs> <Adult. laughs> Let's say. <laughs> yeah. But what, uh, what movie did you pick to talk about today? An R-rated musical called All That Jazz. <laughs> I don't think I realized it was R-rated. I guess I didn't know about it. <laughs> um, but yes, I was telling you before the show that I've actually seen this because I think the way I saw it was a while back, I would buy, this was a long time ago, like maybe over a decade ago, I would buy like um, DVDs at 
Walmart, actually, of all places. Mm -hmm. They kept having these collections. Like one time they would they had like a, a horror movie collection and it was like a ton of horror movies that were kind of like lower budget, older films. And I would just watch them because it was cheap and fun. And like I remember one of the movies even had uh, Jack Nicholson, a very, very young Jack Nicholson in this like terrible low budget horror movie. Um, and then it would have classics mixed in. The, then I think I got another set um, that was like sci-fi, old sci-fi films. And then I had another one that was musicals. And I think I got it because I wanted to see, I can't remember which musical exactly I wanted to see. It might've been um, Hair or something else, but it was like three musicals together, like on one DVD and all that jazz was one of the musicals. And so I saw it for the first time and I really liked it. Like, I remember feeling like, okay, this is going to be my description of it without saying the summary. But to me, it was like, it kind of reminded me of if Darren Aronofsky made a musical, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like it's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's got some, some violence, intense themes, some, I don't know. It's kind of extreme and it's dark and I, <laughs> I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, at the time, I didn't know a whole lot about Bob Fosse. I didn't really know anything beyond what I was watching in the movie. But, um, you know, of course, really enjoy Roy Scheider. And so, like, I, I mean, I just, I really liked it. But, like, a lot of people that around me hadn't seen it. So I never knew who to talk to about it. So <laughs> I'm glad that you have seen it. Um, what What is your experience with this film? Like, why why did you pick this one and and uh you know when did you first see it well um it's it's one of my uh it's probably my favorite movie ever uh, really you know, okay uh, that's crazy possibly. that we haven't I mean, talked about it's, it yet <laughs> it's definitely in the top five i mean you know it changes from time to time you know but uh and surprisingly though i've never seen it in a movie theater i've only like you i saw i first saw it on on home video version. I saw it actually um, not on cable, but before cable, there was something called on TV. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Where they would scramble the, the they would show movies like on HBO, uncut movies, theatrical films, but they would be broadcast over the air and they would scramble them and you'd have to subscribe to the service and you get a descrambler box. So <laughs> that was how I first saw it. And I taped it off of that. On a, onto a VHS. And so for many, many years, the only way I ever saw it was the pan and scan version with the on TV logo popping up every half hour. So, <laughs> so eventually I got a letterbox version and, and now I have the criterion disc. So um, I'm looking but, at reviews for this movie and apparently Stanley Kubrick said it was the best film I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I read that. <laughs> so that is crazy. Like, it looks like it got nominated for a lot, but yeah, I feel like in one the what? like like I don't hear this come up a lot for whatever reason. And like you said, I don't know. I've never seen it in a theater. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting is uh, when we were talking about 1776, I think I mentioned that there was a, a 30 year gap from Cabaret to Moulin Rouge where there were no musicals mm -hmm. nominated for Best Picture. And I completely forgot about this one. And I think part of that is is because I don't I often don't even consider it a musical, even though it I, obviously I has these 
Yeah, it obviously has these big four musical set pieces, but it's more like a drama that happens to have musical set pieces because it's set in the development of a musical. Exactly. Yeah, like it's not, it, it has musical numbers and I love one of the songs we'll talk about later. Okay. <laughs> um, but like, you're right. I don't think of it as a musical. I think of it as like a, a drama. Like, yeah. I think that's why I said it reminds me if Aronofsky made a musical because it's like this really intense, you know, dark drama. And um, yeah, I think it's just not an easy watch. Like I was looking at some of the reviews. It was like one of them that I thought was funny was um, let me, let me pull it up. I'm looking on Wikipedia, by the way, if you're if you're wondering, because mm -hmm. I was just curious about the reception of the film. And it says um, TV Guide said the dancing is frenzied, dialogue piercing, photography superb, and acting first rate. Um, it, it, with uh, non showman Scheider as an illustrious example of casting against type, all that jazz is great looking, but not easy to watch. <laughs> Boss's indulgent vision at times approaches self loathing, which I feel like is Absolutely. very accurate, but yeah. I almost feel like nowadays people would really get that and it would resonate with them. But mm -hmm. maybe just in 1979, I, I don't know. I, I feel like people maybe weren't, general audiences anyway weren't ready for that whereas now i feel like a biography about self-loathing would be very popular like you know yeah. what i mean like i'm thinking of movies yeah. like you know i guess it's not necessarily a biography but like you know the movie birdman or oh, something yeah. else like that where it's like about someone actually recently that movie tar kind of comes to mm -hmm. mind too you know oh, exactly. just I, yeah. I feel like that would really resonate today. It just, but I can understand why people aren't like, I love watching this movie over and over. <laughs> it's rough. I mean, it is a rough watch. Well, I mean, like you, I didn't know much about Bob Fosse when I first saw the movie. And, uh, and I had, to be honest, the first time I saw it, I had trouble digesting it all. And um, it's a lot. Yeah. It, I, I remember being very drawn and hooked uh, to the, uh, the musical numbers that we're going to talk about. And mm -hmm. that's probably why I, you know, that brought me back to watch it again and again until the point where, okay, now I see what's going on because it is edited in such a fragmented way. And you're like, okay, now I can follow it. I uh, looked up Siskel and Ebert's review before we did this. And yes. it, you can find it on YouTube. And it was a split decision. Uh, Gene mm. Siskel loved it. And Roger Ebert admitted that he just couldn't follow it because of all that fragmentation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, like that kind of stuff really appeals to me, the fragmentation you're talking mm -hmm. about. But I completely understand why it, it, it is confusing. And yeah. like you said, it kind of rewards rewatching. Um, yeah. We've gotten so excited. I haven't even shared the summary. So I'm going to do that okay. now and just tell everyone like, I would recommend watching this before um, if you don't want it to be spoiled. Cause I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about, but I feel like we will spoil it and I don't really do spoiler free. So here's the summary. If you're still with us uh, when he is not planning for his upcoming stage musical or working on his Hollywood film, choreographer, director, Joe Gideon played by Roy Scheider is popping pills, sleeping with a seemingly endless line of women. <laughs> the physical and mental stress begins to take a toll on the ragged perfectionist. Soon he must decide whether his nonstop work schedule and hedonistic lifestyle are worth risking his life. The film is a semi-autobiographical tale 
written and directed by Bob Fosse. So I have to admit, like, I don't think I even realized that he wrote and directed this. Like I knew <laughs> that like later when, um, later when, you know, I understood who Bob Fosse was because of like Chicago and, you know, stuff like that. Like I, I realized, wow, okay. He, this is like a very important person that, and, and I didn't realize who he was, you know? Um, oh, did I say Chicago? Yes. Okay, good. Okay. I was like, did I say Chicago or cabaret? <laughs> I just want to make sure <laughs> those two were, I don't know, both in my mind, but I didn't realize who he was. But then after I did, I was like, Oh, you know what? That movie makes a lot of sense now. Like I, I can see who that is, but I don't think I still even realized that it was literally written and directed by him. And my first thought after reading that was like, huh, it's a, there's a lot of self-deprecation or self-loathing. So it kind of oh, made uh... me laugh when I read that, that line <laughs> from that review because i mean mm -hmm. it's sort of a scathing look at himself um but yeah so i i think that was a good description i mean that is what it's about it sounds very straightforward but i think like you said when you watch it it's frenzied and frenetic is a, a good way to describe it <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh it, it's it's very close to what was going on in his life when he was putting mm. Chicago together. Um, the, the wife in the movie, uh, the, or the ex-wife, Audrey, is mm -hmm. a fictional version of his wife, Gwen Verdon, who was the oh. star of Chicago. Um, and oh, like he okay. says, yeah, and, and like he says in the movie, uh, you know, he he really did this because she wanted to prove that she could still, you know, she was she was the star when they met, and then mm -hmm. he started to eclipse her as, as, he, as he became more celebrated as a director choreographer and mm -hmm. she uh i guess wanted to prove that she could play this young character or whatever that's what he says in, in all that jazz mm -hmm. um he did uh kate the girlfriend who's played by ann reinking was based on ann reinking herself she actually oh, was wow. the girlfriend and he made oh her audition gosh. for the part <laughs> he actually made her audition for the part wow um, <laughs> And uh, Fosse and Verdon had a daughter named Nicole, and in the movie she's called Michelle. Uh, the real Nicole Fosse has a cameo in the movie. Uh -huh. uh, just yeah, just before the takeoff with us number, uh, when they're out in like the lobby, and there's a girl stretching in front of the vending machine, and the producer yells at her to go do the, do that someplace else. That's her. Wow. Okay, <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. And, uh, oh, the other thing, he did the movie Lenny about Lenny Bruce uh, at the same time that he was doing Chicago. Mm. Uh, so so the movie that we see him cutting in all that jazz, what Gideon is cutting, it's called The Stand-Up. That's a fictional version of Lenny. And interesting. What's, what's more interesting is Lenny was based on a play that starred a, a guy named Cliff Gorman. And... Uh, Bob Fosse wanted Cliff Gorman for the movie Lenny, but the studio wouldn't uh, let him have that because he wasn't a big name. So he had to go with Dustin Hoffman and they didn't really get along at all. Um, so Cliff Gorman is the guy that plays the fictional version of Lenny and the fictional movie version of Lenny in mm -hmm. all that jazz. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's nice to have all those gaps filled in because like yeah. I said, I didn't know that. Right. 
And the editor that you see in the movie, All That Jazz, who's helping him edit or who is editing um, uh, the stand-up, which is really Lenny, is the actual editor of All That Jazz and Lenny, a guy named Alan Heim, playing basically oh. a fictional version of himself. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and then I already mentioned the, the musical that he's he's casting and rehearsing and, and developing is, is in the movie, it's called New York to LA in real life. It was Chicago. And it was during Chicago that he had his two heart attacks, one right after the other. Well, the second one, while he was still in the hospital, except oh in real life, he survived that heart attack. And in the movie, he doesn't. I didn't realize it was mirroring real life that, that closely, yeah. but it kind of makes sense because I feel like, I guess this is jumping way ahead, but when he has the heart attack, I thought that part was really intense. Like I, mm -hmm. I thought, you know, it it felt real. Like, yeah. and and I think that part in particular was what kind of reminded me a little bit of like movies like um, The Wrestler or something like that. Because I feel like in the movie they do that thing where it's like something intense is happening and you're hearing that high-pitched noise and then silence and like it's yeah. very dramatic and and felt more modern to me than 1979 like i just thought that was really interesting yeah. to see in that film again i feel like it, i keep saying that because i think the movie was maybe a little ahead of its time and that's oh, why absolutely. Are, you know, are, people, are you referring to the, the musical numbers in the hospital or are you referring to the open heart surgery the open heart surgery. Oh, good. Because yeah. I forgot to mention that, you know, I, I did say that I didn't know anything at all about Fosse when I first saw the movie. The only thing I knew about this before the first time I ever watched it, I had heard that there was the, the about the open heart surgery scene because that was a real open heart surgery. That wasn't a dummy with a. Are you a serious? That was, oh my god! That was a real the chest. Uh, what are the chest spreader they call it? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that is rough. That was a real human heart that we saw beating. It obviously, it wasn't Scheider's and it wasn't Fossey's. Oh my god! I, I heard that the the guy who it was he survived and uh, well they actually made him shut off the lights because there was a problem, a complication, and, oh, and no. the guy started. There's blood coming out of the back, and they broke open the heart and they did make him turn off the lights but they kept the camera running but they didn't use any of that footage but the guy did end up surviving and he was at the premiere of the movie wow wow <laughs> i guess like after you have an experience like that that's so visceral and so extreme yeah. it's like i don't want to say it's desensitizing because i'm sure that's really traumatic but I, it's almost like he is sort of working through that trauma with the movie oh, in a way you know like, absolutely let's and, explore it yeah it's really and, cool and, you know, in a way, it's a lot of this movie, I think, has a lot of um, uh, duality in it. You know, he, he loves show business. He hates show business. And, and, and he's flirting with death. He doesn't really want to die. And, and um, oh, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> oh, you but just we, said there's a lot of duality. So and yeah. I agree. Like, you know, he he's close to death. He doesn't want to die. He both hates and loves show business. Like very true oh yeah so i was going to say in some ways the way he takes these musical numbers to uh it, it almost could you could accuse him of celebrating his his uh excesses his obsessiveness yeah. and yet at the same time he's also condemning himself he's really giving you know he's he's really holding himself to the flame there and, and saying you know it, it, 
And Ryan King told him after the, she saw the movie, she says, you know, you're really not that bad. Why didn't, you know, people are going to see this movie. They're going to think you're, you're really that like that. You're not that mean. And he said, you know, I, I, I had to make them not like the character, you know, cause, cause he's, he was basically trying to punish himself through this movie. Yeah. I think, you know, it's very hard to know exactly how we're coming across, I think. And so yeah. I understand like it, I almost feel like he's better off like being too hard on himself than not acknowledging it. Cause I mean, right. the danger of making a biography is that it's just this one big, you know, look at how great I am. And that's right. not really what he's doing. And so like, right. I think that's probably like the more humble and probably the better way, but it's actually kind of nice to hear. He's not as bad as, <laughs> <laughs> as he was in the movie. So that's good to know. Yeah, Maybe he's just, I don't know. I feel like in the movie, he's really acknowledging this kind of like pretty misogynistic side to his career. You know, like the fact that like he's the director and he's directing women, but like the way he kind of treated his ex-wife and, you know, cheating on her and kind of abusing his position with all these beautiful women. Like Absolutely. I think it's really cool that he like at least like acknowledged that. And I'm sure that he's not alone. Like it's, you know, probably that whole industry kind of has that problem, but it's, it's cool that he like recognized it. Like, Oh, okay. Yeah. This is probably pretty bad. Like I shouldn't have done this No, but it's good to hear. He wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me feel better. <laughs> but I guess like when you started to mention that his, his, um, ex-wife was really in it and like has this well, girl the girlfriend role. was or, oh girlfriend actually sorry. i think gwen verdon uh does have a cameo in it as well I oh can't you remember said where. that um she's the the character's playing a version of his yeah so there's yeah. the the wife uh and i technically they never got divorced so oh. they were they were estranged but uh the wife in real life was gwen verdon in the movie she's audrey and uh the real gwen verdon I believe has a cameo in the movie. The girlfriend okay. who's Kate in the movie was Anne Ranking in real life. And she was played by Anne Ranking. Okay. That's right. You, you <laughs> did specify that. Yeah. yeah. But I think like the way he portrays all the characters, you yeah. know, and how they love him, but they've got, you know, they've got beef with him basically. I, mm -hmm. I think that's pretty, pretty raw and honest. I like that. Yeah. And they all love him. I mean, Anne Ranking and Fosse had, broken up by the time that this movie came along. And in fact, uh, he did an, another show called Dancing just before he started making all that jazz. And Anne Ranking was uh, the star of that. And her current boyfriend, or her then current boyfriend at the time was also in it. And, and oh. Fosse was directing them both in it. And they just stayed friends forever. Uh, yeah, same with Gwen like... Vernon. Gwen Vernon was with him when he died. Oh, uh, wow. They, they were, uh, I think it was maybe eight years after all that jazz. They they were in Washington, D.C. going to see a revival of one of his shows, Sweet Charity. They were on their way to that, and he wasn't feeling well, and he sat down on a park bench and collapsed. Oh, my gosh. Heart-related, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think, um, so that, that part has to be, you know, dramatically different from what we see be in the movie, because it's like, if he was really burning all these bridges, he wouldn't uh -huh. still be working with all these people, right? right. In, in such exactly. good terms with them. So that's really yeah. nice. And Ryan King, like, spent the rest of her life keeping his legacy alive. She mm. she directed and choreographed revivals of his shows all over the, all over the world. Oh, wow. So, yeah. 
Interesting look at someone who's a genius, you know? Yeah. Um, so we've kind of talked a little bit about, you know, just different interesting facts about the movie and different scenes. What you mentioned earlier that you really like the music and that's what you connected with the most yeah. at first. Like, can you talk more about that? Like what, which numbers specifically? Well, there's, there's four main musical numbers or set pieces and each one of them is so unique and stands out on its own. Um, the first one is the cattle call that's set to uh, on Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is, I, you know, a chorus line opened a week before Chicago and swept the Tonys that year. And, and he was very jealous of that. And that opening segment in all that jazz is kind of like a fuck you to a chorus line. It's like, look, I could take the whole show of a chorus line and, and condense it into this five minute opening with no dialogue, <laughs> you know? <laughs> funny that's nice <laughs> <laughs> and the editing is amazing in that and and you know it plays kind of like a music video you could yeah. you know, it's almost like you could take it out of the movie and, and make it a standalone music video and this was two years before uh, mtv launched or yeah that's three true years. hadn't thought of that yeah uh the next one take off with us erotica <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the coolest one that's i mean I, it's, I can't even pick a favorite because i loved all four of these pieces but uh uh that was you know that's the only song that's original for the movie that was written for oh the movie. really all this is basically a jukebox musical all the rest of the songs on broadway was a hit for the drifters in the 50s oh in the 60s 1963 mm -hmm. and the version that we hear in the movie was recorded by george benson in 1978 two years before the movie or a year before the movie and he just liked that one and, and it's great the way he, he he found existing songs that commented on what he wanted the scene to be about he picked you know the song on broadway no one thought to you know use that in a musical before but it makes so much sense yeah uh, <laughs> uh take off with us was original um, cause the, that there, I guess when he was doing the musical Pippin, which starred Ben Vereen, um, mm -hmm. and, and that was, uh, and, and Gwen Verdon also, I think, no, wait, no, she wasn't. No, Audrey, uh, Leland Palmer, the, the woman who plays Audrey, who's the fictional version of Gwen Verdon, she starred in Pippin, but oh, <laughs> anyway, okay. But apparently there was a song or maybe a couple of songs that he just didn't like that the songwriter, uh, I think Stephen Schwartz was a songwriter for uh, Pippin, uh, that, he, you know, they, the songwriter gives the, the gives you the song and he's like, oh, I hate this, but it's really bouncy and it's, it's you know, the uh, it's, it's family friendly and the, the producers like it and it can be a hit. So he had to work with it. And so mm -hmm. he... he, he I, what's amazing is I don't even know who the songwriters are of Take Off With Us, but he had to find somebody to write a song that could uh, sound like a conventional bouncy Broadway fun ditty and that he could also turn into a darker thing with double entendres. And, mm. and we get to see that all those ver version, all the different versions of it. We get to see kind of, first we hear the songwriters playing it for him on the piano in the rehearsal hall. We, that's like the demo version. And and the producers are all excited. We can get a commercial tie-in with the airlines and they're thinking how much fun this could be and how much money it can make. And he's like, oh God, I hate this. And then we see the conventional version that he, you know, when he finally shows the like the first draft of the dance to the producers, the first half of it is like this really conventional number 
it's it's it would work well on Broadway. We would all love it if that were a song in you know, a Broadway musical. It would be a hit, and we you know like tomorrow from Annie or something like that, mm-hmm. and, and and everyone would love it. But yeah. it wasn't good enough for him. It's he still uh-huh. did something exciting with. You know, I'm talking by now. Now when I say him, I'm talking about Joe Gideon, the oh, fictional gotcha. version. Yeah. Of Foss. Uh, so, <laughs> so <laughs> I know they're Hard practically to keep them the straight. Same. Yeah. <laughs> One other point, uh, as far as the similarities between real life, I forgot to mention was uh, in the in the scenes where he's uh, in the shower and he's saying it's it's showtime, folks, and everything. There's a close up of a pill bottle. The address on the pill bottle is Fosse's real address. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and the really weird thing about it is, is he, he the rest of his life he denied that that was about him. He said, oh, yeah, I used elements of my life, but it's really not me. It's a fictional character. Mm. And the Criterion Disc has multiple vintage interviews of the, from when he was promoting the movie that, where he would say stuff like that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so interesting. I know. Um, anyway, so uh, then we see the, uh, the, the real Gideon, you know, what he really wants to with it where he turns it dark and they, he brings the lights down and they start taking their clothes off and we are all the double it's just so neat there was a, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was a, a video music video for Paula Abdul a song called Cold Hearted that came out mm-hmm. maybe a couple of years after uh, this the whole thing is um, it is an homage to that part of the of the song to the erotica section and oh. it was directed by David Fincher Mm, wow. Yeah, I forgot <laughs> that he started with music videos. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. And then I guess for me, the other, well, like I said, I can't pick a favorite, but the other big thing that really helped bring me into the story uh, is uh, in all the different uh, who's who, who's the girlfriend, who's the, is uh, the hospital hallucination sequence. And here we have a medley and each one of the three women that's important to him gets their mm-hmm. turn to solo with the other two behind them. And that's where I start figuring out what's going on. And you know, we have the, yeah. the wife does the first one. It's called After You've Gone, which is a song from 1918. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, the girlfriend, Kate, does the second one. It's called There's, There'll Be Some Changes Made. And that's a song from 1921. Oh. Uh, then the third one we see is you, you mentioned the endless line of ex-girlfriends or, or women that he <laughs> yeah. slept with. That's we literally see that in the third one. They they on the slate they call them old girlfriends, and uh, they're fan dancers, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, they sing the, the song "Who's Sorry Now." That was one of the few songs. See, I didn't even know all these older songs until I saw. Yeah, I, the movie. I, I didn't. "Who's Sorry Now" was one that I was familiar with. It was originally uh, published in 1923. But Connie Francis did a version of it that was very, very popular in the 50s. And I'd probably heard that on the radio. Uh, also, closer to the time the movie came out, Marie Osmond did a cover of it. So I might have oh. heard that one as well. Um, Interesting, yeah. And then uh, the fourth one is Some of These Days. Uh, and that's one that the daughter sings. And that one came out in 1910 by oh. Sophie Tucker. Was She was the, the, the main artist who's associated with it but in those days a song would come out and then like 50 artists would record it or, or mm-hmm. i don't even know if they had recordings in 1910 you know and and because i don't think they did they, i don't know i guess they would all sing it in their shows and then people would go out and buy the sheet music they didn't they didn't before they wow. could buy records you'd buy the sheet music or the piano rolls for your player pianos wow. 
<laughs> but it was most closely associated with Sophie Tucker. Uh, huh, also known okay. as the last, she's also known as the last of the red hot mamas. If you Google that, you'll find information about her. And what's interesting is most of these songs are originally about breakups. They're love mm-hmm. songs. And, and he just, some of them, he changed the lyrics, you know, I, you know, the, the, some of these days wasn't really about, she doesn't, she, in the movie, she sings, you're going to miss your daughter, Michelle. That wasn't the original lyric, yeah. but, but some of them are just slightly changed and some of them the lyric isn't changed at all and he's recontextualizing it because of the way we're seeing it in the hospital hallucination while we're literally seeing the the open heart surgery behind a scrim behind the dancers in, in mm-hmm. one of the sections so it re- all the songs suddenly become about death yes you know, and that's not what they were originally yeah so I, th- I think it's fascinating how he does that yeah I think for me, like, I I mean, I enjoyed, like, the whole movie, but I think, like, the ending is what made it, like, I don't know, it just, sometimes that happens, you watch a whole movie, you're enjoying it, but then the ending is, like, really what, I'm like, whoa, I liked that a lot. So, to me, like, towards the end, um, after all that, when he sings, you know, Bye Bye Life, Mm -hmm. um, I just found that number so interesting and like you know like they're still in that musical like you said there's that really macabre like the surgery is happening and then there's also this musical and even their outfits are like kind of disturbing because oh, yeah. like veins or something and it's i don't know it's just like really intense and i think that's kind of what pushed the movie over the edge for me <laughs> like yeah, i liked I mean, all of it but that part in particular i was like whoa this is like super dark now and i don't know it just made me like it even more <laughs> right because by that time it's pretty obvious that they've been hammering it in that that show business is his life so of course yeah. he would imagine his death to be a big spectacular number and it really mm-hmm. is you know and it's so energetic you know and ben vereen is a great choice for, yes. for that. and you know the song that was the, the other song that i was familiar with before the movie because that one i um was done by the everly brothers in in 1957 and it was originally called bye bye love and it's yeah. you know it's a teeny bopper song it's a song about you know two teenagers they're in love and one of them they, they break up and one of is melodramatically saying i think i'm gonna die and now he turns that around and he's literally going to die yeah and the song the lyrics are so depressing he's yeah. like bye bye life yeah. say, well, like i said the original lyric was <laughs> yeah yeah because that he only changed the word love to life he didn't really change many of the other words oh really was, yeah yeah oh my gosh okay i didn't realize <laughs> that either also just random because we're not i i mean i just i forgot to mention it earlier i don't think i don't know if you because I don't think she's one of the main people we talked about yet, but um, I don't think I realized that was Jessica Lange. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. This um, was only her second movie. She was, oh, uh, really? and, and she was having an affair with Fosse. Are you serious? Oh, my gosh. What a legend. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's gotten so popular in recent years from yeah. being on American Horror, Horror Story. She's well, in so many seasons oh, of that. You know, absolutely, yeah. A great well, villain. It totally revitalized her career. What's, uh, but she's a two-time Academy Award winner by the time she does American Horror Story. Yeah, she went through a period where people kind of forgot about I her. Forgot, I think she was yeah. doing a lot of stage work because she was uh, in a long-term relationship with Sam Shepard. Is that his name? Oh. Playwright? Um, a, a playwright and actor. And they did a lot of stuff on the stage, I guess. 
But um, when, when she, her first movie was the 1976 remake of King Kong. And oh, I, didn't know I that. remember that there was an enormous publicity push to make her a household name like Fay Ray. And mm. which is weird because who really knows who Fay Ray is other than that she was in King Kong, unless you were, <laughs> unless you're 102 years old. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were really put, she was discovered. She had no acting experience at all. She was oh, a model. Really? She had done some dancing uh, and she was a model and uh, they, they found her for King Kong and there was a big push to, and the movie did well financially, but it was ridiculed and people didn't really like it. It didn't, and she got bad reviews. Although I, mm. I just started rewatching it for uh, a couple of days ago. And all of what she does in her early movies in Tootsie and then Francis, and uh, you know, uh, it's all there. It's, it's, it's just the movie is not that good, King Kong. Got it. So. Yeah, that happens sometimes. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm not sure exactly how uh, Fosse found her, but yeah, they did have an affair. Was it a casual affair? They they weren't in love with each other. He he says on one of the interviews on the Criterion disc, uh, yeah, Jessica never really loved me. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> but uh, man, and, he and, really he really bears it all, huh? He yeah, <laughs> back. It's funny. But, and I remembered uh, hearing um, even at the time that uh, I, I guess. She was uh, she was also dating Mikhail Baryshnikov at the same time, who's a much better dancer than Bob Fosse ever was. So, <laughs> so he was very jealous about that. <laughs> that is too funny. Yeah, but that whole thing with uh, Jessica Lange. Uh, so she's yeah, she's like an angel of death. So again, this goes back to Lenny, and uh, Lenny was uh, when they did a first cut of it. It just wasn't playing right, and they found that by uh, by they, I mean Fosse and the editor Alan Heim discovered in post production that they could start playing around with time and these and have these fragmented edits where somebody's talking in one scene and you you you're, you leave the audio on for that and you sh cut to these flashes from other scenes and you recontextualize so that what he's talking about in his stage routine we see a, 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 a segment from his real life or not his real life the the character's life and and vice versa and so they found that they that worked so well with lenny that they when he went to do all that jazz he decided to build that in from the beginning originally mm. and it, and the, the editor alan heim says that that actually ended up it was harder to do from the from scratch and it also uh made it less flexible to so that when they wanted to fix things it was harder to do that because everything was designed a certain way but i think the the angel of death sequences was intended from what they learned from lenny was was let's just kind of have him being interviewed by this angel of death type character her name is angelique in the movie and uh, we can cut to that whenever we want to, to uh, have him comment on something that's happening in the, the main narrative. Because the main narrative, as fragmented as it is, the main narrative is surprisingly linear. There's only one flashback, and, and that's in the, in the backstage set, uh, set you know, the, the Jessica Lange stuff. We see a flashback to his mother and when he was a teenager working in the strip club. Mm -hmm. And that's really the only flashback. And, uh, and it's, it's done in that whole, the whole angel of death is a sequence is done in kind of a, a backstage area, a backstage of his life. That's kind of in his mind at the same time, because oh. he would, you know, show businesses his whole life. So he would imagine that death there, there's this 
green room before you get to death, you know, and, and, and yeah. right. <laughs> and <laughs> it's so cool. Cause he's like literally flirting with her. And then mm -hmm. the, at one point the doctor uses that expression, you're flirting with death, you're flirting with disaster. Cause, oh. cause he's exhibiting all these behaviors that suggest he doesn't want to live, but he really does. Yeah. So amazing. <laughs> I'm um so, you know, looking at, I guess beyond the movie, um a little bit. Uh, have did you ever watch um FX have that show Fosse? Yeah, uh, Fosse Verdon. Fosse Verdon, you're right. Yes, um, absolutely. I think Sam Rock Sam uh, Rockwell is inspired casting. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> like if yeah. there's anyone that could kind of follow up, it's a kind of a different flavor, but not really that different from Roy Scheider's performance. So I don't know. I yeah. really, well, I think that's good casting. The miniseries itself, it, it, some, there's parts of it that play like, you know, if you know, obviously you would not want to remake this movie because it was so, you know, it's, it's, it's the person's work. You can't, you can't remake it, but the mm -hmm. miniseries is almost the best, the next best thing to a remake of all that jazz. There's parts really? of it, okay. you know, when they get to the all that jazz sequence or when they're doing the Chicago and Lenny stuff, there's parts of it that feel like, yeah, th this is basically a, a remake with, with Sam Rockwell playing the Roy Scheider part, you know, and then they call him Bob instead of Joe. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. And in fact, the miniseries is based on a biography uh, of Bob Fosse called Fosse, uh, written by a guy named Sam Wasson. And I had not read that before, but again, once we decided to talk about this, I, I picked it up and I, I read parts of it, just, just the parts that deal with this period. Mm -hmm. And, Parts of that that biography read like a novelization of all that jazz, except that they oh. changed the name Joe to Bob. You know, wow, very cool. That's that's um, where I a lot of the information that I'd be giving is I, I got from that biography. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I I wanted to watch it, but you know how it is. Like, there's so much content. Mm -hmm. It's like I intended to watch Fosse Verdon, and then I didn't, and so like this is kind of talking about this movie is making me like want to go watch it. <laughs> oh, you definitely sure. should. Yeah. It's yeah. very good. Well, what else? What haven't we covered yet? Oh, gosh. Well, then there's the <laughs> other songs. That, uh, so I, I mentioned it's like a jukebox musical. There's also yeah. all the songs that he plays in other scenes that aren't musical scenes. They're just the, uh, uh, right. Where, where's my list? There we go. Oh, perfect day. So yeah. Um, there's oh there's the scene with Victoria that's that's um, oh getting back to on Broadway the other thing I mm -hmm. I noticed about that as I was watching it this time was that how it gets almost all the major characters set up it, you know we even though it's it's there's no dialogue on the stage when he's directing them and we don't hear them singing and everything we do meet victoria there's a part where he goes through the line and he has a couple of lines with some of the dancers and so we meet victoria so she's going to be an important character we meet the producers because and the songwriter because they're both saying oh i don't want that one because she doesn't have a good voice and and you got to get me this one because and and then we also meet the the mother or the um not the mother the the wife and the daughter they're also mm -hmm. there because the, the wife is going to star in the musical. So I, I thought that was interesting how everybody talks about the editing and how it looks, how it captures the feel of a cattle call. They're really like that. Uh, yeah. But it's also doing double duty is setting up the story, setting up the characters, giving us a little bit of an idea of who's important in the movie. 
The only mm -hmm. people we don't meet are the people involved in the in the stand-up in the in the movie that he's cutting, and that's in the next scene. And and we don't meet Anne Runking until the next scene as well. Mm. But um, but then uh, we we go and we we see the the little bit about the um, where they're editing the movie, and we get the, we get the introduction of the whole five stages of death. And I want to talk about. I want to come back to that later. But uh, then we we have him. Uh, he, he takes the girl Victoria that he just met in the audition. He just cast her, even though she can't dance that great and she can't sing that great. And we'll hear about <laughs> that again later in the movie. Uh, but he takes her home. And, it, uh, and and she's like, in a way, it's almost like uh, she's using him as much as he's using her. She's yeah. she's like, you know, can I be a star? What do you think? And he's and he's like being brutally honest, even if it means that she's not going to go through, uh, go ahead and sleep with him. She's like, yeah, you know what? I don't know. I don't think you can. I don't, I don't know if you're going to make it because the business is weird. And she sleeps yeah. with him anyway. And that all of that is all that is done to a Harry Nielsen song called Perfect Day from 1977. And I'd never heard it, it before. I'd heard mm -hmm. of Nielsen before. He had the, the theme song from, I think he's most known for the theme song from Midnight Cowboy, uh, Everybody's Talking. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, and, and he did a lot of pop stuff. Uh, he was, I guess, like the Barry Manilow of his day, and mm. uh, and and Perfect Day is playing. It's it's makeout music, and and a lot of people in in the seventies would have played Harry Nilsson to to make out to. Um, <laughs> but that song is so you know it's it, again it's describing the perfect day. It's the perfect day. It, it, it's such it's got this really cool feel to it, this ethereal sounding, these angels and stuff. And mm -hmm. it, he's using irony again. He's saying, because the, the lyrics are saying it's the perfect way to end the perfect day. And it seems like it's perfect for him because he's got this beautiful new woman in his bed, but then the the girlfriend comes home and catches them together. And so it's not really perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the timing on that, I, you don't, cause it's, it's, you're not supposed to notice it, but if, when you watch it and you go back and you watch it again, the timing yeah. on that is he had to time the whole scene perfectly to that song. It starts when she comes into the apartment, when, when the uh, Victoria comes into the apartment and it's, it's just kind of floating to its ending. And it just, you know, they, Kate takes her time going up the stairs with the little dog. And finally, you know, we don't know that how this is going to end. And boom, just as the song ends, she's like, oh, no, I'm sorry. And, and there's the girlfriend who's catching her boyfriend cheating on him. And she's apologizing to him. Oh. <laughs> I guess he's just so charming that it's That's, like hard. Yeah. He's yeah. charismatic. And so he gets away with a lot. And maybe... Mm -hmm. Like this, this, but this retelling of his life is like acknowledging that, like that he feels like that he did do a lot of harm and that his charisma yeah. as wife everyone forgives him all the time. Yeah. The other song that's uh, used in there is uh, it's a Peter Allen song from 74 called Everything Old is New Again. Mm -hmm. And that's the only one of these songs that it, it is used diegetically, but the, the characters aren't singing it. They, they put the record on and they're dancing to it. That's the one where the girlfriend oh. and the daughter have choreographed this silly little number and they're, they're, they're playing it for, uh, they're doing it for Joe to cheer him up because he's all depressed about his movie opening. He doesn't think it's going to do well, but it does do well. And, oh. uh, 
a lot of people talk about that uh, number. It's it's very cute. Uh, I know on the commentary track, uh, Roy Scheider says that, uh, you know, they showed it to him early on in rehearsals and he said, okay, I don't want to see it again until we actually do it because he, it was making him cry. He thought it was so Aww. touching, so heartbreaking. Uh, you know, you really, there's a thread throughout the movie, All That Jazz, where you can see how much he loves his daughter. Yes. And yeah. And that's one of those moments, you know, that, that's, by the way, there was a play. Uh, so Peter Allen, the guy who sings the song, Everything Old is New Again, um, there was a musical written about him called The, the Boy from Oz. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that? And Hugh Jackman plays so. Peter Allen. So Hugh Jackman actually covers that song in the play. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that that's might crazy. Be you, yeah, you might be able to find that on Spotify or YouTube or whatever. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I did not know that. Yeah. And that was from 2003, the, uh, the play, the musical. And then um, the other song that's used brilliantly is uh, There's No Business Like Show Business. Mm -hmm. That's a uh, spoiler alert. It's, <laughs> it's at the very <laughs> end. <laughs> yeah. Um, boy, you know, we, we come this far and we see that this is the guy whose show business, his, his life is show business. And he thinks it's the greatest thing in the world, but and, and he imagined that his his ending is going to be a big spectacular finale, but it's really just him in a morgue and they're zipping a body bag over him. Yes, then, I'm telling you that ending. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and then we hear the irony. He's the song is like, there's no business like it, you know. Isn't it great? And it's not really. Man, <laughs> yeah, it's heavy yeah. for sure. Like you're, you're like, huh. But I remember watching it and being like, I got to see this again. Yeah. <laughs> like, especially after that ending, I'm like, I was like, you know, for some of the movie, I was sort of indulging it. I was, you know, at, I think at the time hadn't seen that many musicals and I'm kind of like, well, we'll see. This is interesting. And then towards the end, I was like, wow, this got dark. <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, and, and, you know, what helps is the staging of that. Like, I'm not, yeah, I don't know sure. much about dancing, but I certainly know that I was seeing something that I'd never seen before. I, you know, the, the, the staging in the hospital number and the, and Bye Bye uh, Life in particular was just so absorbing, you know, just so yes. joyous, even though it's so dark at the same time. Completely agree. I thought like the, those two things being next to each other is, a really good contrast like it's interesting and i feel like it kind of does mirror the fact that like that industry can be so you know pretty such amazing engrossing work but then have a dark side i mean i think mm -hmm. that's not a secret right so it's kind yeah. of it makes sense to do this in a film too if you don't mind i'm going to read something that ann ranking said in oh, the sure. biography that i told you about uh, oh, she yeah, says yeah. All that jazz is about how show business can kill you. Devoting yourself yourself exclusively to your craft is like an all-protein diet. You may not be hungry, but you're going to starve to death. You need other things. And Bob knew it was killing him, and he knew there was nothing he could do about it. He was hooked. That's why I think all that jazz is very moral, because it says, don't do this. You'll lose yourself. Mm. <sighs> That's rough, because I, I think... <laughs> that's so true. Like you can't, I feel like in our society, there's this like push that like, you know, if you're a genius or you're successful that you completely lose yourself in your work. But the reality is that's not a good thing to do. So it's nice that he acknowledges that, but 
it's just tough because like it really happened to him, you know? Yeah. Hmm. And and she's right. It isn't even necessarily about show business. Anybody could get that engrossed in their own work. Uh, it's the certain type of personality that that has that ambition that they can't, that drive that they can't shut off. And, yeah, and, it doesn't even have to be creative. It yeah. could just be being like a workaholic or something. Yeah, you know? and you can't see how it's killing you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I thought there was a lot of, there's a lot of humor in there where you wouldn't expect it. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's the other thing. Uh, the, the, the funniest thing is just the corny joke, but when he's wandering through the hospital on his own, uh, he, mm -hmm. he goes into a room and he sees a jar of eyeballs and he says, what are you staring at? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there's stuff like that. I mean, it's for such a dark movie uh, about death and everything. And uh, this guy is so, so narcissistic. There's still so many silly little funny things like that that pop up in, in small places. Yeah, very true. <laughs> yeah. I think there kind of has to be because you need some lightness mixed in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, I mentioned the five stages of death. So that's a mm -hmm. real thing. He uh, he even names the the author uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross. Have you ever heard of that before? Mm -mm. Yeah, that's, and it gets referenced in a lot of other movies and books and stuff. It was it was mm -hmm. very famous. Um, the five stages of death, and but I love. I, I never heard it until I saw this this particular movie, and uh, I love how he just keeps you know. He, he keeps going back to it and playing it over again. And, and there's a reason for him in the story because he's still cutting the movie and he's got to keep cutting that scene. But then he's using that to also show us how he's relating that to what Joe Gideon is going through. Mm. You know, Joe Gideon is actually experiencing those five stages. And, and that really all comes home in that moment where he's wandering through the hospital that I just mentioned. Yeah. Because you know, at this point, he's no longer in the cutting room cutting that scene, but he's playing it back in his head. And mm -hmm. and we see him mention, you know, we hear the actor saying those five stages and we see him mimicking each one of them, you know, in, in his own Gideon way. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I love that moment when he goes into the, 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 into the room where he finds that old woman. Uh, and and uh, he kisses her. He says, "You're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen." It's and and, and on the on the commentary, the, the editor says he 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 told he suggested that you cut that that uh, Fosse cut that scene because he thought it was too on the nose. And but I I think it's like the one of the few moments of redemption in the movie. It's you mm -hmm. know it's uh, he described it as you know he's he's giving a new life to that woman. He's uh, uh, you know he's he's, he's He's passing his life on to her, but oh. I don't know if that's really what he what it was. But I just felt it's it's a nice redeeming moment. He, it's just before he the finale starts, where he's going to, you know, to the final performance of his life. And uh, the um, the only other redemptive moments in this are with the daughter. We you know at the, at the end when he's running through the audience, she's the only one who cares that he's dying. Yeah. So he's got that side of him, you know, he's, there's this, this and, and the way he pushes the camera in on them, you know, when, when he goes to hug her and the, the trumpets are pounding away at, uh, in the score. It's just, it's just so, so powerful that moment, you know, that, that, that you get the, you clearly see that how important Michelle is to him. Yeah. And 
the other, you know, one of my favorite scenes, you know, and, and I, I can, I can go back to this and, and just watch just the musical numbers on their own. You know, I don't have to always watch the whole movie. One of those non-musical, well, it's kind of a musical number that I can go back and watch over and over again that I find fascinating is this, the two scenes where he's, uh, where the, the mother, well, you know, the wife and the daughter are each, uh, where are their rehearsal scenes. Mm-hmm. Well, with, with the wife, she's rehearsing her dance and he goes in there and they're having a conversation about the backstory. And then later it's it's with the daughter where he's still trying to figure out the dance for a number. And it's part, you know, it's during his visitation with the daughter. Uh, imp- that's part of it in particular is, is I, I just read so much into that about their relationship, about it's like they both, both the women know that that uh, dance is is everything to him. And it's like, that's the only way they can really communicate with him and connect with him so there it's the only time that they have a chance to talk about the backstory about how he cheated on her and how the mother's mad and all that stuff even wow. the daughter gets her licks in but in order to do that they 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 both have to know his language of dance so while they're having yeah. those conversations it's second it's a second language for them and while they're having those conversations he's saying straighten that leg uh do this jump here and do this kind of, roll your head this way and they know what he's talking about because that's the only way that they can get into his world is to be part of the, his dances. It's it's such a beautiful scene, especially the one mm-hmm. with the daughter. Yeah. Yeah, I do find his relationship with his daughter to be really moving. Mm-hmm. And For then sure. I also love the, uh, the table read, how they drop out all the sound. And oh, the yeah. only sound that's left is the sounds that he's making. And that's that's really putting us into his head. You know, yeah. just just like when we go to Jessica Lang scenes or or in his head, mm-hmm. you know, this is another way of you know, this is he doesn't even he he cares about the show, but he doesn't care about the book. You know, right. He doesn't he doesn't care about the script. He does it. That's just an excuse to have dance numbers. The the, the show that I told you that he did just before uh, all that jazz dancing that was that didn't have a book. It didn't have a script. It didn't have characters. It didn't have dialogue. It was just a dance review. It was one dance after another, and it was a big hit because it was Bob Fosse dances. But wow. he he was all his life. He he kept you know he, he wanted to be a dancer. He did dance on screen in some movies, but he wasn't going to become the next Fred Astaire or Gene Kelly. And so he became the choreographer. And then he didn't like having to be the second banana to the director. The director might cut his stuff or change something. And so he became a director. (laughs) And, and then, uh, and then, you know, even when he's directing a, a, a play, once he get, you know, once he tells everybody how to do it, once the show opens and the curtain goes up, he can't be on stage to, to fix it. The, the, it's mm. out of his control. The, the dancers and the actors are still going to do what they do. And so that's why yeah. he moved to film because then with Lenny, he didn't like Dustin Hoffman's performance. So he found by, by editing it, he had more control. He could shape the performance like he would shape oh. the dance. Wow. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just more and more and more control. And, uh, mm-hmm. And and um, I don't know how I got to that from why uh, I was talking about the sound design and the table read. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. There's just there's just so much in this movie that amazes yeah. me. Yeah, it is it is really well done. And I mean, I think that's what's interesting about like when you look at the reviews and the critical reception mm-hmm. is like it like you said it doesn't stand out as like 
it's not a movie everyone has seen, but there's definitely like a lot of um it's a movie a everybody of, should see. Yeah, there's a lot of praise given to the things about the movie that really stand out. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to talk about Roy Scheider because you know we oh, all know him from Jaws mostly. Yes, that's where I know him. <laughs> and he also, he did other he did action movies like The French Connection and The Seven mm-hmm. Ups and stuff like that. Uh, he's obviously not a dancer. He's not a trained dancer. And and, and of course, Fosse could cheat that. And with the editing, he can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> but what's that's got to be intimidating because you know whenever somebody's playing a living person or even a dead person, they're always you know oh I I, I don't want to meet them or I don't want to watch too much of their stuff there's always that question not too many people are playing a a real person who is also the person who's directing them and that that person is by by definition of the character they're playing is a perfectionist so yes (laughs) i can't imagine (laughs) the tall order for sure yeah i can't imagine how difficult that must have been for him and i think he he pulled it off amazingly i mean he's really immersed into that role i don't see the guy from jaws and when i watch that movie at all no, but I also feel like Bob Fosse himself, like, especially I think like looks wise, it, Roy is a really good fit because mm-hmm. I feel like he like captures and Sam Rockwell has it too, where it's like, mm-hmm. he's very like, I guess, ordinary looking, but it's like hard to put your finger on it. He's just like yeah. very attractive somehow. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It just, he, he like nailed that. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and interestingly though, uh, Richard Dreyfus was cast in the part originally. Oh, his Jaws counterpart. <laughs> his Jaws counterpart, exactly. And uh, <laughs> after two weeks of rehearsals, it wasn't working out, and he left. And they had to shut the production down for six months before they could find somebody else. And uh, and you know that scene in the movie where he's having his heart attack, and they tell the um, the, the cast and the crew, well, we we'd like, we want to try to keep you together. We don't want to lose you. We'll try to find new jobs. And, and, you know, that really happened with the Chicago cast and crew when he really? had his heart attack. It also happened with the all, the all that jazz cast and crew when they shut down when Richard Dreyfus left. They, Richard they the Dreyfus, same. I think, is maybe a little too intense. Yeah. I think the for, studio for wanted to start. He, yeah. he had just won the Oscar for the Goodbye Girl at that time, and so oh, the, okay. the, the the studio was trying, you know, pushing for him because they wanted a star. But he wasn't the right person for that job. Yeah, he's not. He's a great actor, but I think yeah. he plays himself mostly, and like yeah. I, you know, he plays like the same guy, and he's 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 usually kind of like the straight man, or like mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like he's just very serious, and so I feel like Roy has this like relaxed quality to him that I think Sam Rockwell does too. Mm-hmm. That I don't know. It's just a little yeah. bit more easygoing. Yeah, this makes yeah. a little more sense. I, I I also want to share with you that I did meet two people who were involved in the movie when I was oh, living in, in Los Angeles. Nice. Uh, the first one was the editor Alan Heim. Um, I I was when I when I was in LA, I was uh, on the board of directors of a of a nonprofit where we put together um, Q and A panels, industry panels. Oh, nice. And uh, we did a pan, an editor panel, and it was Alan Heim and the guy who edited Avatar, which had just come out. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> that was a good panel. So I, I got a picture with both of them, and I really only care about Alan Heim because <laughs> <So, laughs> I loved uh, all that jazz so much and yeah. Lenny as well. And That's a cool the, opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And the other one is Deborah Gaffner, who played Victoria. 
Um, we both had shows at the Hollywood Fringe Festival at the same time, and we were both uh, promoting them on the same industry email list. And I think she contacted me and said, oh, your show sounds, this is the one I told you about at the top of the show, the Chatterbait, the musical. She said, that yeah. sounds interesting. And I've got a show in the festival too, and you should come to mine and I'll come to yours. And so we did that and we met. Wow. And it was really fun. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. A personal connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I would have. I, I want to meet anybody who was involved in them. In that, oh, for in, sure. Yeah. Um, I don't think we talked about John Lithgow. We didn't, and I was yes. noticing that when I was looking at um, while we were talking, I was looking at some of the stills, and I was like, oh yeah, I sometimes forget that John Lithgow is in this. <laughs> yeah. There's, He's very young here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess it was pretty early. Oh, you know, speaking of that, um, Wallace Shawn is in the um, in the uh, insurance scene and during the. Okree. Okay, I the thought that was him. <laughs> I mean, he's and kind of was, unmistakable, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he'd been in the in theater and on stage for a long time. But this was 1979. He had four movies out. Those were all four of his first movies. He was he was not oh, well known oh, in the movie I didn't know world that. yet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and he just has the one line, but he delivers it great. You, you can tell that that's him. You recognize him from the Princess Bride and everything else. That yeah. he's done. <laughs> but and it's so it, it hammers his line is the one that hammers home the the, uh, the satire of that moment, the the irony of that moment. There, there, yeah. he's sitting on a table. We're we're cutting back and forth to his chest open and his and his heart being fixed and uh there's a boardroom that's sitting there of cold uh, insurance people saying well you know if he dies before this date we you, you can make a profit without even opening what a great line um the but john lithgow uh, so he's the director that they go to just in case joe doesn't pull through and they're going to yeah and there's a lot of debate about who that's supposed to represent. Uh, I don't think he's ever specifically said, but it seems to be a, a composite of Hal Prince, Mike Nichols, and uh, Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett was the uh, director of uh, A Chorus Line, director choreographer of A Chorus oh, Line. Okay. So he was, the, all three of these guys were his rivals. Hal Prince, I guess, kind of pissed him off. I, you know, I, one of the early things that he did, I think, in Sweet Charity, uh, Hal Prince changed it. And that, you know, so he was never forgave him for that. Uh, oh. And I, I, yeah, so, but uh, I, I always thought it was also Michael Bennett was a, a big part of that, uh, that character. But I don't know any of them personally. I don't know what any of them look like or sound like. I, so I think it was he was just trying to get back at everybody he hated with that one character. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> That's funny. And it's great when that waitress, you know, comes to him and for his autograph, he says, oh, you're my favorite director next to Joe Gideon. I'm so sorry your show was a flop. You know, she thinks she's complimenting him. And, and we can see on their faces, like, what's really going on? He's just so pissed yeah. at her and everything. <laughs> And Lithgow does that, that whole, <laughs> he does that whole part really well where he's just, you know, mm -hmm. it, where he's saying one thing and we know, we can tell from his face that he's really meaning the other. Like, yeah, absolutely. I, I just enjoy him and everything he's in yeah. really. <laughs> yeah, And then they brought him back. He was only in those two scenes, but then they had to bring him back for the ending because he had to have him go through the audience and, and interact with every single character that he, that mm -hmm. we've met through the movie. And so of course he's in that scene as well. And they do the little handshake and, and you, and, and, and Roy Scheider gives that look like, Oh yeah, he's, he's like, you know, he's glad that I'm dying. So he's going to, cause he's going to take over my show kind of, thing. you know, originally according to the biography, the, the, the Sam Wasson book, 
there was supposed to be a scene after he dies where we see John Lithgow uh, take over the, the show, NY to LA, New York to LA, and it becomes a big hit. And that was going to be the real finale of the movie. And they were, they, they were going way over budget. And at the time, the movie was set up at Columbia Pictures. And Columbia said, we're not giving you the money. You're going to have to cut that. And so they were able to get 20th Century Fox to come on and put in more money. And they ended up combining the two finales into making the Bye Bye Life the bigger finale. And then they just mm. dropped the other one. So much better. Such a good choice. <laughs> yeah, Even if it I agree. Yeah. Yeah. No, because that's like my favorite part. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's it's all about him. It's a biopic on Joe Gideon. You don't need to continue mm -hmm. after he's gone. Yeah, I agree. Good choice. It's nice to know all that background though, and to oh, kind of yeah. know like all the ways it could have gone. <laughs> yep. I probably well, could. I could, oh, I probably ahead. could go on for a long time if I wanted to, but I don't <laughs> want to bore your listeners. No, no, no. All good. You know, appreciate all, all, all of this. Um, I, I guess to kind of wrap it up towards the end here, um, if you could summarize, like what, what is it about this movie that you feel the most drawn to? Everything. <laughs> I, all that jazz. It, it, yeah, and all that jazz. <laughs> it is, it is, because I once you know, and I didn't know the backstory when I first saw it, and I first fell in love with it and watched it over and over again on that VHS tape. And eventually, I learned more about it when, when uh, you know, the more I watched it and the more I started reading things here and there. Uh, so knowing the history of it, the musical numbers, the the fact that it it is it is such a dark subject matter and it tells such a really compelling show business story in a dark dramatic way and yet it still has those fun numbers. It is all those things combined into one is the main thing that I like about it. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you and I forgot to mention this early on, but like um, I've talked about this movie in one other episode but it reminded me of a movie i saw this past year uh called uh or i guess last year now uh bardo Fa false chronicles of a handful of truths have you seen that no i've never heard of that okay so it's directed by uh Inaritu and it's in spanish oh, okay and, yeah yeah you probably recognize that that name and he uh, it's about a renowned Mexican journalist and documentary filmmaker who returns home and works through an existential crisis as he grapples with his identity, family relationships, and folly of his memories. And it's, I mean, kind of a parallel to this movie. Like, I'm thinking about it now, and I'm like, man, oh. it must have been inspired by, because it's literally kind of about Inaratu himself, and it is a critical look at himself, because in the movie, the, when did the that journalist... Come 2022 oh okay so it's new okay yeah yeah and basically in the in the movie the uh the documentary filmmaker which is basically him is getting this award for um talking about i think e either talking about a lot of oh i remember it's in i guess a critical look at the way that mexico is perceived by america or mm -hmm. it might have been 
I can't remember what the award's over. It's something like that, or it's about people that have gone missing in Mexico that have died, something like that. But about a big political thing that he's aligning himself with, but at the same time, he's profiting off of this tragedy because he's making the documentary about it. He's getting all these awards, and he doesn't really represent what the documentary is about because in the documentary, it's about you know people that are suffering and not well off and missing and things like that um but he himself is like a very privileged person that lives in mexico and so Mm. it's kind of a critical look at at him like is he a big hypocrite for doing this and there's a lot in the movie about that it's very dreamlike and at times you can't tell if like it's really happening or it's a memory and it's pretty good i thought it it's very long and a lot of people called it like (laughs) self-indulgent too long weird kind of like the stuff they said about this movie so just throwing that out there again if you're interested i think it's a pretty good film um and maybe i'm doing a little bit of a spoiler by saying like it has a similar quality to this and how Mm -hmm. it's kind of trippy and weird but there's a reason for it and it's pretty good that sounds i like his movies i love him more yeah yeah, I mean, I love like The Revenant, and I mentioned Birdman earlier, and didn't yeah. even think about this movie for some reason. Yeah. But um, it, it it's really good. But I um, so I derailed us there for a minute. But no, to summarize, fine. I I like movies like this that are kind of you know psychological questions about life, questions about ourselves, introspective. Maybe I do like that little bit of self loathing. I don't know, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I I just really like this film and. Um, if you had to pitch it to somebody, what what would you say to get them to be interested in it? Oh, wow. Um, you should see the best movie ever made. <laughs> uh, I would no, say I, Kubrick said it's good. So if you like it. <laughs> Kubrick said it good. It's, good. it's, um, it's a, I don't know. Because, uh, yeah, if you just kind of describe what it is, it may not sound enticing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain. It's like, I guess if you like movies that are a biography about, I don't know, it's hard to explain. <laughs> but it, it's really good. You should see it. I think we'll just go with that. I think yeah, that's what we If you like Fosse Verdon, if you saw the miniseries Fosse Verdon. <laughs> there you go. That would be a good one. Also, yeah. I don't know, uh, The Fablemans is also a director making a movie about himself. So. Very true. <laughs> Although that one I feel like is a little bit more rosy, but I haven't yeah. seen it. So I need to see it still. <laughs> You still um, haven't seen it? Oh I still God. haven't seen it. I know. I'm I'm ashamed. Um, especially since I love Steven Spielberg so much. I don't, I, I don't know. It's holding me back. I just but, saw it this week. So. Oh, you did? <laughs> okay, yeah, there you I go. didn't rush out to see it. <laughs> I'm not alone. Um, well, Danny, thank you for coming on. And thank you for having for, me. Of course. Yeah. Thank you for talking about this movie. I, you know, little did you know, I was very excited and wanted to talk I about was, it. Yeah, I, I was, I was almost getting, you know, I was going to suggest to you when I thought you, I thought you might not have seen it at all. And I was going to warn you that you might want to leave time to see it more than once because it is hard to digest all at once. And I guess that's, you know, part of you know your questions that, that you're asking here is uh, what I might warn somebody who was watching <laughs> it for the first time is, you know, you, you got to pay attention and you may not, it may not all make sense all at once, but uh it's worth it and just enjoy the musical numbers and then go back and revisit it. <laughs> yep. Completely agree. Although like hard to digest and, yeah. and requires rewatching is almost like an, 
beacon to me like of i will probably I, like it then oh good <laughs> i'm you know I, yeah. I was trying to find out if ebert roger ebert ever revisited it and changed his mind and i couldn't yeah, find that any, would be and, interesting i couldn't know. find anything definitive but somebody on reddit said they thought they remembered him saying that on one of their recap shows uh you know the, the the deck, you know, the seventies decade or something like that, where he yeah. said that he, yeah, he realized he was wrong about that. I don't know if that's true. I hope it is. So. Me too. I feel like <laughs> from time to time, that's got to happen, you know? Yeah. The only time I remember, well, there's a few times, but the one I most remember is with the Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood movie. Oh. And he admitted that he saw it the first time, like the day before he was getting married. So he was not really paying close attention to the movie. He was getting out of the things on his <laughs> I mind. I like that movie. <laughs> Is it? It's um, a great movie. It's a good movie. Um, <laughs> well, Danny, thank you again for coming on. Uh, this was a pleasure. And, you know, obviously we'll have you back soon. And thank you for doing the podcast because it is so uh, refreshing to hear people talking about movies that they love rather than you know, what the rest of the podcast world is like. It's about <laughs> let's tear everything apart. I concur. Yeah. Well, thank you again. <laughs> All right.